Tis the season to shine with H&M. Discover the holiday collection and find fashionable pieces for your wardrobe or for under the tree. Get inspired and dazzle with this year's glam. From tuxedo styles, bow detailed pieces, impressive prints, and more. From unforgettable looks to unforgettable gifts. With fashion finds to home decor, find it all at H&M. Treat your loved ones and yourself this season. Shop in-store or at hm.com. Hello there, my name is Craig, host of the Pacific War Channel podcast. If you like learning about the history of the African continent, I bet you'd also enjoy learning about the history of the Asia-Pacific War. Our current season is focused on the history of China and Japan during the 19th century. If that sounds appealing to you, please come check us out at the Pacific War Channel podcast here on YouTube, Podbean, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. Back to you, Andy. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. Today we'll be taking a close look at the Second Dynasty of Egypt, the many calamities that befell them, and the pharaohs who remanded them. Now, let's begin. Episode 6, Egypt is Shattered. So, last week we talked about the later years of the First Dynasty, and to briefly recap, things were going pretty well until a series of disasters befell Egypt around 2900 BC. While the exact causes are unknown, there is some clear historical evidence, like a reduction in the size and splendor of royal tombs, that Egypt experienced a period of steep economic decline. There is also some evidence that rebellions, rising pretenders, and foreign wars were commonplace during the late First Dynasty period, obviously signs of a very unstable state. We left off with Keba taking the throne, and, despite being a successful ruler by all accounts, he would be the last of his dynasty to rule Egypt. Keba, specifically, reminds me of a leader from the 20th century, longtime Yugoslav president Josip Broz Tito. Both took charge of an unstable country on the verge of collapse, both led their nation for a long time, and both presided over a period of economic prosperity and stability. However, Keba and Tito also shared each other's negative traits, namely their inability to share power. Keba proved either unable or unwilling to produce a successor, and as a result, like Yugoslavia in the 90s, Egypt fractured into a bloody civil war after his death. Now, tracking something as chaotic as a civil war is difficult even when the civil war is going on right now. But just imagine how hard it is to try and piece together a conflict that happened 4,900 years ago, and that every participant in the conflict also decided to go by multiple names. So, for this reason, the details of how the civil war played out are uncertain. So, after Keba dies, a civil war breaks out between two powerful people. The first is a man named Horusburg, about whom pretty much nothing is known about. In fact, the only evidence of his reign is a few artifacts that show his name encased in a royal serif, implying that someone with this name claimed to be the pharaoh of Egypt during this chaotic period. His opponent in this conflict was a man named Sneferka, who has an equally short biography. His existence is only attested to by a few artifacts, on which the name Keba is erased and replaced with his own. This could be taken as evidence that Horusbird was a more legitimate successor, and that Sneferka didn't claim to be a descendant of Keba. Uh, but this isn't just a stretch, this is a whole yoga session. Ultimately, who Horusbird and Sneferka were is a complete mystery. They could have been relatives or children of Keba bureaucrats, nomarchs, or just random, charismatic dudes during a time of crisis. In Sneferka's case, 
There's even some evidence that he may have been a she. The Serach, containing the name of Sneferka, lacks a falcon standing atop it, a practice that is only done by one previous ruler, the Queen Marinith. This opens up the possibility that Sneferka was maybe one of Keba's wives, but we don't really know. How this war played out is a complete mystery, though some evidence from the city of Abydos during this period indicates that it was incredibly destructive. The best evidence of such destruction comes from the tomb of Keba himself, which was completely leveled during the fighting in the city. Remember, a couple of weeks ago I said that the crushing of domestic revolts is usually much more destructive and brutal in a foreign conquest, and this civil war would have been no different. How this war ended is unclear. One of the few things we know for certain is that it ended with the elevation of a new pharaoh, Hotep Sechemwi, to the throne. More is known about Hotep Sechemwi than Sneferka or Horusbird, but that's not saying much, as his biography is also relatively mysterious. He was likely from Upper Egypt, and his name tells us a little bit about how he viewed himself. Hotep Sechemwi roughly translates to the two powers are reconciled, or the two lands are at peace. This strongly implies that he was in part responsible for putting an end to Egypt's civil war, though how he did this is unknown. Maybe he crushed both of the pretenders militarily, or maybe he was kind of a compromise candidate that both factions in the war could accept. There's also a chance that he was a close ally of either Sneferka or Horusburg and that one of these two won the war, and that Hotep Sechemwi elevated himself to the throne after they experienced a short rule. We don't really know. Regardless, some way or another, Hotep Sechemwi ended the war and reunited Egypt under his reign. His rule is pretty poorly attested to as well, but it seems to have been relatively stable. His main task was to try and rebuild Egypt after the devastating civil war. One of his first acts as pharaoh was to rebuild the destroyed tomb of Keba. This is an interesting decision, as it shows that Hotep Sechemwi wanted to depict himself as a successor to the first dynasty, protecting and maintaining the legacy of the past pharaohs, rather than trying to replace it. He also went to immediate work building a new residence for the pharaohs, which might imply that the last one had been destroyed during the civil war, or maybe tainted by the presence of a pretender. This spree of rebuilding seems to show a booming economic recovery during Hotep Sechemwi's reign. Pretty much nothing is known about the foreign or religious policy of Egypt during this time. Fortunately though, our main source, Manetho, only records the most important information. He records that a sinkhole opened up in the city of Perbas during Hotep Sechemwi's reign and some people fell in. Wow, good to know. We don't know where Hotep Sechemwi's tomb is located and, until it's discovered, his rule will likely remain enigmatic. Hotep Sechemwi's effort to reunite Egypt was not in vain, as the rule passed successfully and peacefully to his successor, Nebra. Little is known about Nebra's reign, but what little is known points to it being relatively uneventful, but stable. The only really significant thing about Nebra is that he was the first pharaoh that we're pretty certain is buried at a location other than Abydos. Instead, he was buried in Saqqara, a tomb complex outside of Memphis. This points to the continuation of a trend we've been seeing since the rule of Horus Aha about 200 years prior. Aha moved Egypt's capital from Thinis, the hometown of Egypt's very earliest pharaohs, to the new city of Memphis. However, while Memphis was the new capital, the continual practice of burying pharaohs in Abydos 
a city that you remember is right next to Thinis, shows that the old capital still occupied a crucial religious role during the First Dynasty. The decision, then, to move the pharaoh's grave to Memphis was another example of the new capital's continual rise at the expense of the old. Nebra's reign was short, and he was succeeded by Nineshare. Now, we're not certain what Nineshare's relationship to Nebra was, but we're pretty certain that he wasn't his son. Nebra had only one son, and he went on to become a member of the Egyptian priesthood. Maybe the son was just seen as unfit to rule, or maybe he just didn't want to and thus Ninjer took the throne instead. Ninjer would go on to rule for a miraculous 45 years. Ninjer's reign was incredibly successful. He led victorious campaigns against Nubia and by all accounts enjoyed economic prosperity. One of the reasons for this success was because of his practice of delegation. Previous pharaohs held an immense amount of personal power and were usually unwilling to share this power with much of anyone. If you go back to episode 3, you'll remember that I talked a lot about nomarchs, or the leaders of Egyptian city-states in the pre-dynastic era. Well, nomarchs were still around at this time, albeit in a much reduced role. Rather than serving as kings of their city-states, nomarchs by the second dynasty period were more like mayors or governors. Sure, they still had some power within their dome, but they were clearly subservient to the pharaoh. While nomarchs handled things like policing, organizing street cleanings, and small agricultural products, you know, local government stuff, a lot of surprisingly local tasks were still controlled directly by the pharaoh. For example, the Palermo Stone, an artifact that documents the reign of various pharaohs, documents some of the tasks that the pharaohs would do that seemed surprisingly menial for someone as revered as them. Jer, for example, personally oversaw the construction of statues in small-town temples, while Den apparently was personally involved in conducting multiple censuses. Major infrastructure projects, like the construction of irrigation systems and roads, were also directly overseen by the pharaoh, not to mention the ever-growing number of religious festivals and rituals that the pharaoh needed to complete. A small army of minor officials, like scribes and treasurers, would report directly to the pharaoh with their various concerns, reports, and requests. This type of micromanagement, while effective, was probably pretty tiring for these pharaohs to deal with. I mean, Ninjer, I'm glad you finished taking the census, but now you need to direct the construction of a canal in Nechen, and we need you to go open the new temple in Sais. And don't forget that you need to check up on the Apis Bowl, too. And you should also probably make a legal ruling on that murder that happened in Thinis last week. I mean, after all, you are the son of Horus, and who knows justice better than you. And we heard that the Eunetti are up to trouble in Canaan again, so you should probably go raise an army to deal with that. I mean, by the light of Amun-Ra, just let the man rest for a minute. Niger's solution to this ever-growing list of responsibilities was the creation of a new system of bureaucracy. The most important position in this new bureaucracy was the vizier. The vizier was the second most powerful person in Egypt, submitting only to the pharaoh himself. He was the main authority in charge of all the pharaoh's earthly matters, like making sure taxes are getting paid, nomarchs are getting their jobs done right, irrigation projects are getting built, you know, government stuff. That small army of bureaucrats would channel their comments to the vizier instead of the pharaoh, so he could handle the less important ones, and report only the most important matters to the pharaoh himself. Religious matters were delegated primarily to a complex structure of priests, with each god in the Egyptian pantheon having their own cult of worship. These priests would oversee the conduction of sacrifices, minor rituals, and other standard religious stuff.
The pharaoh, who was seen as the son of the god Horus himself, was above such lowly rituals, and would only conduct the most important festivals and ceremonies. This new bureaucratic system vastly increased the efficiency of the Egyptian government, as matters could be attended to much faster. However, it also meant that an increasingly large amount of power was held by the bureaucracy and not the pharaoh himself, and opened up new avenues for corruption. For example, who's going to stop the tax collector in Thinnis from accepting bribes now that the pharaoh couldn't interact with him directly anymore? This expansion of bureaucracy, while useful, quickly developed into a crisis, with the vizier and his lackeys holding an ever-growing amount of power. This bureaucratic crisis resulted in Egypt's government not being able to respond to a real crisis, when Egypt was struck by a series of droughts and financial woes. And then, after 47 years on the throne, Niger died, and Egypt fractured into multiple kingdoms. How this happened is up for debate. Niger had multiple sons, and some scholars claim that he believed that dividing Egypt into two kingdoms would allow his sons to better deal with the challenge of managing expanding bureaucracy. Kind of like how the Roman Empire was intentionally divided between two states near the end of its life. Others argue that this division was not planned, but that the eroding of the centralized power of the pharaoh resulted in a gradual decline of the royal authority after Niger's reign. Regardless, Egypt was divided into two kingdoms. One kingdom was based in Upper Egypt, and another in Lower Egypt. The history of the rulers of these kingdoms is incredibly jumbled, with it not really being clear at any given time who is ruling what. But we do know that these kingdoms were completely separate and independent. Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt had separate rulers, bureaucracies, and economies. Each kingdom conducted a separate treasury, run by a separate set of administrators. They even conducted different religious practices. The Lower Egyptian state, based in Memphis, continued the tradition of the Second Dynasty, burying their pharaohs at Saqqara. The Upper Egyptians, on the other hand, renewed the older practice of being buried at Abydos. One Upper Egyptian ruler, Set Peribsen, even attempted a massive religious shift that completely reordered the Egyptian pantheon. As his name implies, Set Peribsen primarily worshipped Set, god of the desert. Remember how Set originated as the protector beast of Nekaterian? Well, it seems that Nekaterian remained the center of Set worship in early Egypt and that this cult of Set had a major influence on Peribsen's religious views. On previous royal seraphs, a falcon, the symbol of Horus, stood watch over the pharaoh's name. However, on Peribsen's serif, it is the symbol of Set instead. Previous pharaohs had claimed to be the descendants of Horus, but Peribsen instead claimed to be of the line of Set. Lower Egyptian pharaohs, on the other hand, continued the old practice of using Horus on their serif, which shows that if not for what happened next, we might have seen Upper and Lower Egyptian religions sever more permanently during this era. However, this division would not continue for much longer. In 2700 BC, Peribsen's son, Khazikemwe, took over after his father passed into the afterlife. Khazikemwe's name means, The Two Powers Appear, a name I'll elaborate on in a bit. He was likely the son of Peribsen and ascended to the throne shortly after his father died. Not much about his early reign is known. However, it appears that at some point during his rule, relations with the lower Egyptians broke down. This was not especially unusual, as the relationship between Upper and Lower Egypt during this time was not always positive, and sometimes even resulted in small skirmishes between the two kingdoms. 
At the time, Lower Egypt was ruled by a man named, well, we don't really know. Most Egyptologists refer to him by the pseudonym, Hujifa, meaning missing. This is because, on ancient Egyptian kings lists, his space is intentionally left blank. Essentially, his name is the Egyptian equivalent of writing N slash A on a form. Why relations between Hujifa and Kazakhemwe broke down is unknown. Maybe the religious differences between the two kingdoms became too much to handle. Or maybe Hujifa fancied himself to be the next Narmer, because it would be him who threw the first punch. He launched an unprecedented invasion deep into Upper Egypt, and Khazekhemwe was completely powerless to stop this onslaught. Lower Egypt had long ago surpassed Upper Egypt in both wealth and population. Thus, Hujifa had a larger army, and could afford to give them superior weapons and supplies. First the capital, Thinnis, then Avalos, and then Nicotiri, the helped in his might in Lower the city, being slaughtered en masse in the process. On an engraved vase, Khazihemwe is watched approvingly by Nechbet, the protector deity of Upper Egypt, as he dominates the Lower Egyptian army. The Lower Egyptian pharaoh, Hujifa, had exhausted all of his men and resources in his failed invasion. This was the perfect situation for Khazihemwe, as he could retake Lower Egypt while facing little to no resistance and thus the infrastructure and buildings of this region could be undamaged. Egypt was united once more. Khazakhemwe was pretty different from his ancient predecessor, the uniter of Egypt, Narmer. Narmer set out to unite Egypt, while Khazakhemwe had united Egypt pretty much by accident. However, his methods for reuniting this fractured kingdom after the war were fairly similar to those taken by Narmer. He immediately took a lower Egyptian noblewoman, Nimatap, as his wife, and together they would form a new Egyptian dynasty. Again like Narmer, Khazakhemwe used religion as a tool to heal Egypt's divide. He united the traditional veneration of Horus with the popular cult of Set promoted by his father, and became the only pharaoh to use both of these gods in his royal serich. The two powers referred to in his name might have a double meaning, referring to both Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt, and to Set and Horus. Finally, Khazakhemwe took drastic steps to reduce the power of the bureaucracy, restoring the absolute power of the pharaoh. There was never any record of Khazakhemwe appointing a vizier during his reign, and if he did, it's pretty telling of this vizier's lack of power that no records even exist that mention him. Khazakhemwe also did away with the separation of upper and lower Egyptian bureaucracies, restoring the old one Egypt, one system rule of the past. He merged the upper and lower treasuries and used their combined funds to stimulate the economy through a series of massive building projects. One of these projects was the Shunet el-Zabib Temple in Abydos, the largest religious center ever built in Egypt at that point. In fact, this structure was so large and grand that when Egyptologists first discovered it, 
they thought it was meant to be a massive military fortress. He also constructed the great enclosure of Saqqara, a structure of unknown purpose that was one of the earliest stone structures in Egyptian history. By the end of Khazakhemwe's reign, Egypt was the most prosperous it had ever been at that point. However, despite all of his successes, Khazakhemwe did not rule for long, achieving all of this in just 12 years. He was the last pharaoh to be buried in Abydos alongside the other great pharaohs of Thinis, in Abydos's grandest tomb. Khazakhemwe's rule was one of the most important in Egyptian history. When he took power, Egypt was in a state of extended crisis, separated into two squabbling kingdoms, and overtaken by religious disorder. Had he not reunited Egypt, we have no idea what the rest of Egyptian and even human history might have looked like. But by the end of his reign, the foundation was set for Egypt to begin one of its longest golden ages, known as the Old Kingdom. Join us next week as we learn about what Kazakhemwe's son, Djoser, would do with this newfound wealth and stability. Here's a hint. It's pyramid-shaped. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by a monetary donation to our Patreon, which can be found on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. By giving the show a review on iTunes, or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested.